if you're going to love people, then you need to step into their walking pace of life, thinking pace, and love them by, by not saying, hey, you need to catch up to me. You need to be at my speed. No, you need to step in and go, okay, where are they right now and how are they doing and how can I walk at their speed? Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Ben Palpant is a memoirist, poet, novelist, and writer of nonfiction. He's the author of several books, including A Small Cup of Light, Sojourner Songs, and The Stranger. His new book, Letters from the Mountain, is a collection of letters to his daughter about writing, creativity, paying attention, and generativity. Uh, Ben Palpant, I'm so glad that you are on the Habit Podcast today. I'm so glad to be here. You have some of the coolest people in the world on this show, as I was just saying. And so believe me when I say it's entirely my honor, Jonathan. I I tell you what, I agree with you that I have some of the coolest people on this podcast. It it really is a great, uh, I'm I'm thankful for who I get to talk to on a regular basis and including you. So I'm I'm thankful we're talking to you, Ben. Thank you. Uh, Okay. So your new book is called Letters from the Mountain. Um, is there a subtitle? Is it? There isn't a subtitle. Good. How did you? Res- Nobody can resist a subtitle. How did you? How did you do that? <laughs> well, honestly, it was my. It was Rabbit Room. Pete Peterson said, "I don't think we need a subtitle." Okay. It did have a subtitle because I can't resist it. Okay. I think it was something like "Wisdom for Writers," and he said, "That's uh, that's unfair because this book applies to more than writers." So okay. I said, "Okay, pal. That's I trust you." Okay. Uh, it's also a little bit um, presumptuous too, right? That's right. Here is Ben Palpant's Wisdom. <laughs> well, the, the, title, the title alone, Jonathan, Letters from the Mountain, has a sort of, uh, you know, look at how far I am up the mountain. So, yeah. <laughs> well, at you least know. it wasn't Letters from the Top of the Mountain. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Letters from the Top of the Mountain, semicolon, looking down on everybody else or something like that something you could have, That's right. could have considered. Yeah. There's the, I think this is, um, I was just talking to my daughter, Kylie, who these letters were written to yesterday about, uh, that subtitle and, and the title of the book and just, um, the joy of knowing that your child is catching up to you and, yeah. and can actually be alongside you at certain points in the journey. Um, you know, a little bit like the, uh, the the story of the the sick man when his friends came to help him carry him up the rooftop and lower him down. Uh, we were just talking about how at some point, I bet those other friends needed him. Once he was healed, you carry each other's yeah. pallet and you just help each other out. So I think that's where this book is really rooted. How can I help my daughter, but thereby come alongside other folks? Who will need to come alongside me? Yeah. So these are literally letters to your daughter, Kylie, who's yes. also a writer. Yeah. Yep. She's in uh, she's in Scotland right now, finishing up her master's at St. Andrews. And uh, so it's been a long journey with an inauspicious beginning. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure how far to go back. There, there are so many stories to tell. But um, when Kylie was probably four or five, maybe we went to, uh, we went on a camping trip. So she was our only child at the time 
And being poor, we we generally had this uh, little car that just couldn't handle that kind of distance. So we rented for the first time uh, a rental car, and it was incredibly shiny, beautiful blue uh, car. And went out to the coast, had a great time. I gave Kylie all the rules uh, of of camping. And uh, she did pretty well as far as I remember. But on the last morning when we were packing up, um, I, I'm, I'm rolling up sleeping bags or something. And I look out the tent and there's Kylie uh, drawing on the car with a rock. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I've never run that fast in my whole life. So I, I, I got her up, picked her up, and she could see by my expression that, you know, this was a, this was a big no-no, which was a complete shock to her. <laughs> uh, you know, there's this beautiful blue canvas for her. Yeah. So yeah. she said, but daddy, I was just trying to make something beautiful. I guess, <laughs> I, great. But you know, that's <laughs> one of those moments when I think as a dad, okay, I, yeah. I, I, I got to give this girl some direction. And that's just, <laughs> you know, that's just led to um, lots and lots of conversations over the years. We have such a great friendship. Um, she asks me questions all the time. She's watched me so much. In fact, I was just reading um, The Gift of Asher Lev, picked mm-hmm. it up off the shelf this week and uh, opened it up. And there's Kylie's little baby scrawls because she'd <laughs> watch me underlining in the book and pick it up. Yeah. So some of my best, you know, some of my old classics, the 100-year-old the books, she'll just pick them up and start underlining in them. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a treat, Jonathan. Yeah. That's great. As, as I was reading your book, I, I kept thinking about that poem from Richard Wilbur called The Writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the one where he's he's standing outside the um, a room where his daughter's uh, writing a story on a typewriter. And it, and for the first part of the for the first part of the poem, it's all uh, nautical images. So like the, she, it's, she's sitting in the prow of the house and. And she's, you know, she's freighted with this story and she's trying, you know, it sounds like the, the typewriter sounds like the chains of a, you know, on a, on a, um, on a ship or whatever. And he says, I, something like, I wish you, wish you safe passage. Hmm. And then that's the first half, half of the poem. And then in the second half, he remembers the time a bird got stuck in that same room and it was beating itself to death, you know, on the wall, like kind of almost literally beating itself to death, trying to get out. And they open the window for it and they wait outside and, and, and watch and listen and are so grateful when it makes it out the, makes it out the window alive. Mm-hmm. It, it would sort of beat itself against the glass and then kind of collapse down and, and wait to get its wits back about it and then, and then try again. And then finally it made its way out the window. And, and the last line is, um, I wish what I wished you before, but harder. Yeah. I, you know, he wished her safe passage as if she were a ship. And then you realize maybe writing is more like being a bird trying to you know, beat your way out of a, of a, of a glass window. Mm-hmm. And so he, he wished her safe passage again. I just kept thinking, I mean, you know, as you in these letters are talking to your daughter about the, here are some perils that you're going to be facing and here are some, um, it's, this is a father wishing safe passage for his daughter. Yeah. So, you know, and I'll add, to, that's a, that's a beautiful picture, Jonathan. I'll add that, that, um, the sense of being a bird yourself, wishing another little bird out the window <laughs> adds to it because that yeah. that's how it feels. I, 
I think, uh, you know, in an earlier podcast, Harrison, I think it was Harrison Scott Key who just said, um, there's very little that's glorious about this, this work. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, you have these moments that you're like, wow, that's really great. Uh, letters that come in that are just in- entirely surprising um, that God would use your stories, your experience and redeem them in someone's life. But really, it's just a it's just a slog. You you just um, in Kaim Potok says in Asher Lev, you have to harness yourself to the work. Mm-hmm. So that that's a net. That's, you know, that's a very negative way of saying it. But there's a truth to it. If you don't love writing, if you don't feel like this is just the work of writing itself, if you're in this for the fame or the accolades, the praise, the money, uh, then th- that's part of why I want this book to be. Um, why I wrote it to Kylie, just to remind her that uh, this isn't about the platform Mm -hmm. that you're supposed to make. This is about giving yourself away. Mm -hmm. Uh, So your entire life, and that's for writers, artists, non-writers, that's just the Christian calling. Give yourself away. Um, I love something you said in the book, nothing is relevant here. You said, life is a gradual dawning on the heart and mind. A few eureka moments might punctuate, might punctuate a life, but most of the time we travel in relative obscurity, doing our best. Hmm. Um, so, how do you how do you write and keep writing without the eureka moments? You said there are only a few. You, you, you say there are only a few, and then yeah. you use the the helping verb might punctuate a life. <laughs> <laughs> So a, a few, <laughs> a few uh, eureka moments might punctuate a life, um, but man, I, I think of I've I've been known to think of writing as sort of capturing those eureka moments. So, what, what well, is, I think that's I think that's true. I think those eureka moments are God. God's kind enough to give those to us um, periodically, mm-hmm. um, and they're not always big. So there's a I think there's a there's a difference between seeking an a eureka moment that is top of the mountain mm-hmm. and something that's just a glimpse of where you're heading or yeah. of the view. Yeah. Uh, so just you know, for full disclosure, if my dad listens to this podcast, he'll 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 chuckle because he loves hiking. I'm I have no desire to hike, uh, none whatsoever. <laughs> but I've hiked enough to know that. Um, that that metaphor, and this is a script, scriptural metaphor of, of climbing a mountain together, Mount Zion, that, that um, those moments when you're hiking along and you just think, I just got to put one foot in front of, an, uh, of another, you round a bend and you realize, wow, look at that view. Look at, I didn't even know I was here. Yeah. But that's beautiful. And uh, sometimes it takes the smallest form. Sometimes it's just somebody who read your work and said, Hey, you need to know this is beautiful. So my, my first book, a memoir on my health collapse and, and then subsequent working through those hard questions with God, I gave a rough, I didn't write that for anybody. I I just wrote that for me because I realized I'm forgetting some of those principles that I learned along the way. So when I gave the, you know, very rough draft manuscript of a small cup of light to a friend, um, I just wanted honest feedback. 
Well, he came rushing to me the next day in tears and just said, you have to finish this book for me. Mm. Um, I, I didn't really have a choice at that point uh, because I realized this is much bigger than me. This isn't about me anymore. Um, This is about how God's going to use this work to generate something in other people's lives. That's beautiful, whatever that may be. Yeah. And I think there's also the, the, the truth that as you plot along, um, you, the very act of writing about paying attention to the mundane and, and the, the non-Eureka moments of life dignifies those, mm-hmm. those moments and, and sort of the, what meaning is there finds its way out when you just tend, tend to your business and, and, and write about that stuff. Yeah. But it does take Jonathan, I think a, an attentiveness and a, and a heart posture that that's not going to happen all by itself. Huh. So, um, you know, I'm forgetting who it was who said God walks among the pots and pans. Um, uh, can't remember who she was, but that's just a great quote. Yeah. And then, and then there's the, of course, there's the moment where um, Jacob's fallen asleep out in the middle of the wilderness, and he's got that rock for a pillow. And then when he wakes, he has a, that dream, and when he wakes up, he says uh, something akin to woe is me i i i had no idea what what where i really was yeah this is holy ground mm-hmm. um i think i think that's just the world we are in uh and it's so easy to lose sight of that when we're in a polarized time as we are but even with all the conflict that doesn't change the bedrock fact that god has put us in a place that's incredibly loaded with the divine more than yeah. we we can notice. And so being awake to that, that's a, that's a calling for every Christian and every work. And some work is harder to see it in than others, Uh but um, looking for the divine and all these mundane things. Yeah. I sat next to a little girl at a um, school concert, you know, the kind of school concert where different people come up and do their, their thing, you know, actually maybe it's more like a talent show than a concert. Anyway. So next this little girl and she was, I don't know, 10, 11, and she had a little notebook out and she was just writing down what she saw. And it was, you know, it'd be things like uh, these boys came up and um, one of them forgot his guitar strap. So he had to go back down into the audience and get his guitar strap. And he came up and, you know, and then some boys came up and played and they all had glasses except one. And, you know, and it's just, just kind of whatever she saw, she wrote down. And I thought this kid gets it, you know, that just paying attention, and I was thinking, you know, also in two years when she looks back on this, she's going to be embarrassed. But in 10 years when she looks back, she's going to think this is great. Yeah. You know, well, that, she, yeah. that she was just paying attention. I mean, I think about the, the journals I wrote when I was, when I was, you know, 19. They're so terrible because I thought I had to, you know, I had to say smart things instead of just, I'm just not interested in what 19-year-old Jonathan thought was smart. But if I wish I did know who he was hanging out with how much gas costs, whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> yeah. So th- that little girl though, she's practicing what, I-, I don't remember if this is Chesterton or Lewis sounds more Chestertonian, but he said um, that we need to practice omnivorous attentiveness, mm. just pay attention. Mm. Um, 
So that's, you know, I, I refer to that in my chapter on, on listening, I think, in the book, that, that um, we will notice more if we practice noticing. So even the girl, she doesn't need to be impressed by, she doesn't even have to go back and look at what she wrote. Yeah, well, that's she's right. That's a great point. She's practicing attention. So yeah. in 10 years, 20 years, she may not even remember that she did all that. Yeah. But just the habit of paying attention. You know, it's not like, uh, wasn't it Sherlock Holmes? I, when I was a kid, I read Sherlock like crazy. <laughs> but he would, he, he'd be able to sit in a restaurant and at some killer moment, right? He'd be able to reveal, you, you don't actually know what is around. You, you aren't noticing the little scuff of dirt on the sleeve or, you know, how many steps you walked up that uh, to this restaurant. Um, that all leads to some mysterious reveal. But life is, isn't that right we're not all sherlock holmes yeah but god has given us so much to notice and and much more than we could possibly pay attention to but i do think there's a way that we could pay attention to it a little more and that's going to start with gratitude the less grateful we are the less we're going to notice um yeah. or we'll notice the wrong things right the, the <laughs> inverted picture the, the um those strange pictures where you show it to a person and it's one person says that's an old lady yeah right and then the other person says no it's a little girl looks how cute she is yeah. well i think life is so much like that and gratitude is seems to be that um distinguishing mark that allow it's it's not that um that painting or that drawing um they're both right right mm -hmm. it's an old lady and it's a little girl but the beautiful side of that is that little girl not the gnarled ugly witch-like picture on the other side of it so i think that we we have plenty of chances in life um, to notice the abundant generosity of god and to live in that with gratitude and patience and i don't need to be more than i am mm -hmm. uh, i don't need to be c.s lewis or gk chesterton i i just i get to be me and I get to be this little, uh, I get to offer myself uh, to other people. You know, I, in the book, I refer to um, the nameless kid uh, who gives away his loaves and fish to Jesus. Uh, he's, for me, the, the picture of this generative generosity that we just are called to give the little we have. Mm -hmm. um, and I want my little girl to know, to remember that so that when I forget, she can remind me, dad, all, all you have to do is give the little you have and then watch God multiply it. And it's always astonishing what he can do with the little I offer. Yeah. Yeah. You use that term generative and generativity a lot. I mean, it's, it's sort of the central idea or mm -hmm. a central idea of this book. So what do you mean when you say generative? Tell yeah. about that word. Well, I got that. I, I stole that straight from Mako Fujimura. Makoto Fujimura is a, an artist, a contemporary uh, artist, whose work is just staggering to me. Uh, it's a bit mysterious. It <laughs> takes me a while to to get an appreciation for it. But um, so he has used that in his book on culture care mm -hmm. as the as the the road toward um, cultivating culture rather than just thinking in terms of cultural warfare. So I uh, see if I can remember his three G's. Uh, he has 
that uh, so generative just means that it generates right it, it it comes from the latin to mean to beget something mm-hmm. um and it it begets uh in three key ways one is that it gives genesis moments so it inspires in the people it encounters whatever art whatever writing it is it inspires in the reader or the viewer some creative expression um whatever that form is the second is that it's generational so Uh you're not thinking of just how do i hit a demographic today and get the biggest bang for my buck but how do i make something that when these folks see it they're gonna say i gotta i gotta show my kids and my grandkids and they'll cherish the same thing right so we do that with tolkien we do that with flannery o'connor we do that with all these writers we love uh and the third one is that it is generous so there's a it, there's a gratuitous this also is mako it, gratuitous generosity not just um here i'll give you a token gift it, it's what i can give no it's giving my whole self and so generative artwork is gratuitous when you encounter it you just think this person's given their whole self to this work it's not just a a, a side uh, slick show here it's it's their whole person involved yeah yeah um so is there such thing as art that's not generative Mm, I, I think I'm going to say yes, uh, but I, I think it def- depends on what you're defining as art. So um, there are some things, you know, when you when you stick a urinal on a wall and call it art, mm-hmm. I'm 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 skeptical as to its value as art itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so does it generate something in other people probably but it's not going to generate further creativity it's going to it's going to evoke a, an emotion in me that's repulsive yeah um but i think artwork is uh, I, I think it's easy for example for christians in particular to just dismiss modern art generally speaking and not think in terms of abstract or uh, representative uh, representational art and so i think those are categories that i need to study more mako has certainly helped Mm -hmm. Um, just sitting in front of his painting for 10 minutes opened up galaxies for me that i just thought oh my goodness this guy has captured beauty in a way that i didn't expect and if you just walk by you go that's kind of weird Mm -hmm. but if you sit if you sit in it uh, there's something that generates in you a, a visceral response to beauty that's really generative. Mm-hmm. So I think there is art that that or writing or stories that can be generative in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're going to be faithful to the Lord, the works that we're making uh, need to evoke something deep and transcendent. Um, I hope this is okay. I just, before we got on together, remembered Andrew Peterson gave me uh, this book, Living Things by Ann Porter. And this poem in particular that he, um, he had me read when I was visiting with him. 
So uh, it, this is connected here. It's called music. When I was a child, I once sat sobbing on the floor beside my mother's piano as she played and sang, for there was in her singing a shy yet solemn glory my smallness could not hold. And when I was asked why I was crying, I had no words for it. I, I only shook my head and went on crying. Why is it that music at its most beautiful opens a wound in us and ache a desolation, deep as a homesickness for some far off and half forgotten country? I've never understood why this is so. But there's an ancient legend from the other side of the world that gives away the secret of this mysterious sorrow. For centuries on centuries, we've been wandering, but we were made for paradise as deer for the forest. And when music comes to us with its heavenly beauty, it brings us desolation. For when we hear it, we half remember that lost native country. We dimly remember the fields, their fragrant, fragrant windswept clover, the bird songs in the orchards, the wild white violets in the moss by the transparent streams, and shining at the heart of it is the longed-for beauty of the one who waits for us, who will always wait for us in those radiant meadows, yet also came to live with us and wanders where we wander. Mm. So I, I think that the generative art isn't necessarily going to give us these positive life feelings but they will awaken in us a longing for the other side for that kind of beauty yeah I, and i think there's a certainly in nonfiction, and in, in there are kinds of persuasive writing for instance that are that don't seek to open up conversation but to shut down conversation mm -hmm. i totally that's, agree. and that's you know different from the kind of generative work you're talking about yeah yeah. Why, why is it that we still read Lewis and Chesterton and those guys I was talking about? Because they, they provoke questions that we want to talk to others about. Or yeah. We just want to keep having those conversations. And I think that that's, that's incredible prose when you can pull it off. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, it's so helpful to remember that there was a conversation happening before we got here. And we're Amen. joining into the conversation. And... Yeah. Hopefully inviting other people into the, into the conversation. That's right. Yeah, and that's one of those chapters in the book where I talk about the, the architecture of good writing. Um, I had an architecture friend, professor, who, who laid out some of the principles of good architecture. Well, one is knowing the landscape. Hmm. You can't just plop down a, a, a glass tower in the middle of Montana in the mountains. It, hmm. One, it doesn't work the geology doesn't work, but it just, there's a clashingness to it. So where are you in the, in the, in the history of the landscape that we're living in and step into that. So it does take study. You need to know what others have written about. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they'll adjust what you're thinking. You can't just be reading whatever came out the last five years. Yeah. Right. I, I love a phrase you use. Um, you say, I'm seated at my desk trying to learn love's language and its cadence. Um, love's language and its cadence. A uh, couple of questions. One is, um, you've kind of been answering this question all along, but I just want to hear you talk about it a little bit more. What, what's the connection between love and writing? And, and I realize your book is about bigger things than writing, but my podcast is not. My podcast is about writing, so I'm going to get you to talk about writing with you know love and writing, mm -hmm. um, and then 
that word cadence, I wonder, what do you mean when you talk about the love's cadence? Hmm. And if whether or not that's distinct from love's language. All right, we'll give this a go. <clears throat> Jonathan, I think it was when I first started writing, the temptation to write for the world is so great. Mm -hmm. And even if I was on my best day, not thinking in terms of fame, I was thinking in terms of a really large audience. Mm -hmm. Well, that, the work I did, the writing I did when I was thinking of a really large audience was not my best work. Mm -hmm. It never was, even if I gave it just the best I could do. But as soon as I started thinking about two or three people that I thought this book would be helpful for, in this case, you know, my daughter, but mm -hmm. I have five kids. So even as I, I was I was writing it, I'm thinking in terms of my youngest who just loves to draw, right? My oldest who loves to write, my second oldest who's into photography. So they 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 just have their own kinds of expression. But that narrowing of the scope, mm -hmm. not the scope the target audience down to two, three, four people, then I can speak with a, a specificity mm -hmm. and an authenticity and an intimacy that, that is the, that is the expression of love, mm -hmm. right? It, it, we, we, if we love people, those are the, th those are the things that we see in one another when we go, we, we love that guy, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think writing has got to be, I think writers have got to learn to pick. So stories, for example, um, people who write fiction, it doesn't matter. Pick those three or four people you're like, I think they would like this story. You write it for your, your own enjoyment first, mm -hmm. but you write it for these other two or three people and just add, I think they would enjoy it. And then you'll write your best stuff. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to cadence, you know, I've, I've told one of the conversations I've had with my daughter, my daughters, is that when you uh, interact with other people, you need to learn what their pace is. Hmm. Um, some people, they, they, they move and think at a pace that is lickety split. Yeah. And others are just plotters, right? They're just mm -hmm. slow. If you're going to love people, then you need to step into their walking pace of life, thinking pace, mm -hmm. and love them by, by not saying, hey, you need to catch up to me. Mm -hmm. You need to be at my speed. No, you need to step in and go, okay, where are they right now? And how are they doing? And how can I walk at their speed? And it's, it's no different than just when you're with a friend taking a walk. You, mm -hmm. you figure out what is that cadence? And mm -hmm. you walk at that cadence, and you can't um, you can't do that with a million people, right? A thousand people, but you can do that with a handful. And then what I found is that when as soon as I find the cadence with those two or three or four people, then somehow it has an attraction to more than that. More people mm -hmm. go, okay, that's that's me, that's my cadence, and I feel love coming through the the writing that way. Yeah. I love it. I, I mean, I, I think it's, there's so much wisdom in, in saying I'm not writing for the world. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, it takes I'm, the pressure off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I also don't, uh, 
you, even the even the, the the books and stories that the world goes crazy for are are not because the the, the writer sat down and said, "What is the world going to go crazy for?" <laughs> right? right. I mean, Harry Potter. There was no market for wizard stories, you know, right. wizarding yeah. school stories. It, that wasn't because J.K. Rowling said, "Let's see what are people really looking for." Right? right. People don't know what they're looking for. They don't right. know it until they see it, and you you bring what you can bring. Yeah. And um, which seems. Um, you know, so relevant to some of the things you've been you've been talking about before. You know, when you said, it, "I'm not G.K. Chesterton. I'm not. I'm not Lewis." In your case, you could say, "I'm Ben Palpin." In my case, I would say, "I'm Jonathan Rogers," uh, and and that's all we've got. That's all we've got to bring. Yeah, I don't remember Jonathan. The name I, I love this guy. He's a Frenchman. Last century, right over on my shelf somewhere over there. Um, Moriac. I don't even know if that's how you say his name. Right. I think he was the one who said, I, I don't choose the color palette of my stories. It's just the way God made me. And mm. I don't even necessarily like the color palette of my stories, <laughs> but it's what I have. And God has, God has used every experience in my life to, to, to build that color palette in such a way that I can do my best and offer what I've got, but it's not for the millions of people. It's for whoever God intends that, um, that multiplication to land for. Uh Um, I I had Jerry Sitzer is a mentor of mine. He wrote a grace disguised years ago, uh, dealing with his suffering. It's an incredible book, but I gave him my memoir really early on. And I thought, well, if anybody will be honest with me, it's Jerry. Uh, He's a, he's a straight shooter. So he, he thoroughly loved the book, but one of his advices, which I've never forgotten, was don't, um, the number of likes, uh, the number of positive reviews is no indication on the quality of a book. Mm-hmm. It just tells you who's, who's been in touch with it. But quality, quality work is not always indicated by you know, it's got a thousand, five thousand reviews. And has how has that changed the way you think about your work? That that bit of advice. Well, on my good days, it, it's it's freed me up to just be me, yeah. not read reviews. But but every author longs for those positive reviews, right? I mean, sure. so yeah, we we read them. I try not to read them too much, but give myself a, a few weeks between reading reviews, but you go on to see, is it still being reviewed? And then of course, you, when you, when you do that, it's always humbling to land on that one star review that, yeah, right. that, that ends up being, well, yeah, that's honey. You, you shouldn't read this book because it's not for you. So. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, okay. I, I, Real quickly, I say real quick. I'm asking you a very deep question. Asking you real quickly because we are we are sort of getting close to the end of our time. Um, Prayer and writing. Talk to me about prayer and writing. You have a whole, Mm. at least one chapter on on the topic. Yeah. So, I think it was A. W. Tozer. I think who it was said that he would he would write on his knees, um, as a posture of that kind of con- conversing with God. And 
you can you can hear it in the way he writes. Mm. Um, there is, in in my opinion, there's a humility, a tenderness, a receptivity um, that is taking that divine and extending it out without denying the truth. Right? We're not just out to make something beautiful. We want it to be true. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I I think the short answer to that is uh, read the book and. and <laughs> But uh, but truly, I, I think writers need to approach their desk, their their laptop, in a prayerful mode. It doesn't mean it's always serious, right? Mm-hmm. So if if prayer is truly conversation with God that's constant, we're just talking to the Lord. Um, then there are, there's just so many funny things in life that we should be talking to God about, not just not just the heartache, heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. So even humor, even the things that are just uh, lighthearted, there there needs to be an approach to that that says, Lord, um, use me as your vessel. Uh, I want to be a viaduct of life mm-hmm. to other people. And the only way that's going to happen, I mean, who gives us our ideas? If God's truly sovereign, then he's giving me ideas, and I need to steward those gifts and those ideas and do the best work I can craft something beautiful. Um, but that's going to take a lot of prayer and the grace of God just to make that work. Yeah. I love the reminder that, that, you know, this isn't the, our best stuff isn't coming, coming from inside us. <laughs> you know, it's, it, we have to be in a posture that leaves room for grace to, to, to go beyond, you know, I, However brilliant you are, right? If you're depending on your brilliance, you're you're topping out at your own brilliance. That's and right. That's not, it's just not enough. Amen. Yeah, I, I don't want this to sound too esoteric, um, but there are times, Jonathan. I'm sure you face this when you go back and read something you wrote five years ago, and you think, I I could I, I don't know how I did that. Mm-hmm. Um, painters talk about this all the time. I don't. I don't know how I, you know, uh, Lee Young Lee, the poet who's mostly enigmatic to me, but I just love reading his stuff, um, talks about the humbling. The older he gets, Mm -hmm. the less he understands how poetry actually happens in the poet's mind and heart and comes out. It's just, uh, it's humbling and mysterious. And I'm, I'm hoping God will tell me more when I get (laughs) to the other side, but, uh, I just, I just am so grateful that some of that electricity, that divine electricity could pass through my fingertips onto the page sometimes, just yeah. just sometimes enough for me to go, Lord, thank you. I'm so grateful to be part of that process. Yeah. Great. All right. Last question. Okay. Who are the writers who make you want to write? <laughs> you know, I, uh, I've got a list of them, but it's usually the person I read lately, right? Yeah, right. Um, But Steinbeck, I'm a late bloomer with Steinbeck. I did not like him as a high schooler, probably because I was forced to read him. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I read East East of Eden is just like the the David of of fiction for me. But in a different case, like if I when I stand before the David, I'm just intimidated and I think, well, it's all done now. I can't possibly (laughs) create something like that. But East of Eden. Steinbeck, he he writes in such a way that it, I feel like, you know, I can't do that, mm-hmm. but I I, I want to write something that has that kind of 
uh, complexity and affection for the human heart, even mm-hmm. even as broken as it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just incredible to me. I've never read that book, by the way. Oh my goodness! It's it's not an easy, it's not an easy read, yeah. uh, but it's it's incredible. And then I would you know on a poetry level, of course, there's Rich Mullins. Uh, his music, I think he was one of the great poets of of um, Christian music. Ray Bradbury and Flannery O'Connor, of course, um, just st- stunning to me. And their own, they're, they're so different. Um, but I would add also Alan Patton, Cry the Beloved Country. Mm, yeah, what a great book. Uh, so there are some of those folks that uh, I, they are so beyond me. Uh-huh. in their ability but they invite it's just that generative aspect they invite me to write my own stories and do the best i can and and say what did they do well how can i learn from them and yeah i, I love those folks yeah well ben palpin this has been so much fun thank you it's and been i hope, hope been a lot of people read um your book and um and I hope a lot of people benefit. I know you. I know your daughter. I'm, I'm glad you wrote it for your daughter, and that the rest of us get to look in on it. So thanks. Right. Thanks, Jonathan. Appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by the Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community, and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The Habit membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.